Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital pertaining to consumer-facing startups. That's both consumer technology and physical goods. We're interested in learning what the world's leading VCs look for in founders and opportunities, as well as learning from venture-backed B2C founders who have grown their businesses to incredible heights. For those who attended our virtual summit last week about CPG, thank you. We had a blast putting it together, and we hope you all enjoyed it. We certainly did. Our guest today is Carlton Fowler, managing partner of Goat Rodeo Capital Management. Carlton focuses on the beverage space, with some of his investments including Lemon Perfect, Sourced, and One Hope. Previously, he led Spirits Innovation and Brand Development at ENG Gallo. In this episode, we focus our conversation on the change in beverage during COVID, how brands are innovating and becoming creative, and how he sees value add from investors in the space. Without further ado, here's Carlton. So Carlton, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well today. It's Friday. I'm looking forward to the weekend. I actually have a wedding to go to, but really excited to be on. Nice. That's great, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me, especially on a Friday. This is probably the last thing you want to be talking about Friday afternoon. Uh, well, the, the best part about this is, uh, you know, I, I love this stuff so much. I talk to anybody about it. So really, you're just giving me another another opportunity to jabber <laughs> at someone for, for 30 minutes. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Awesome. I love it as well. So talk to me a little bit about the beginning. Tell me about what initially attracted you to the beverage industry. I would say there's an emotional reason and a strategic reason. And I'll, I'll start with emotion because emotion always wins anyways. I love beverage and specifically beverage alcohol, because it's such an extrinsically driven product. What people drink say a lot about who they are. It's a hobby for some folks, but it's also to some degree a luxury good. You don't have to drink every day and you shouldn't drink every day, whereas you do have to consume food every day. You do have to drive your car every day. And so what I tend to find about this industry and even increasingly some of the other industries that we invest in is you tell a story. There's a lot more storytelling about the consumer themselves by what they pick. And the more extrinsic a category you have, the more impactful brand's going to be because you're going to have that word of mouth. And when you get that storytelling right, people are going to consistently do your job for you as a brand grows. I, I can't tell you how many times during the rise of Tito's, I would order like a 
Grey Goose Martini and the person next to me would be like, well, have you, have you tried Tito's? And I'd be like, do you work for Tito's? He's like, no, no, just, you know, you know I'll, let, me, let me buy you a, a Tito's Martini and you'll see it's just as good. I was like, wow, this is the power of an extrinsic category. So a little bit more so than maybe toilet paper or toothpaste, though those marketers work very hard as well. The strategic reason and the reason I stick investing in it is inefficient systems that are thriving in spite of their inefficiency can generate a tremendous amount of value. And for your listeners, I hope this was helpful. I'll explain the three-tiered system just a little bit. Essentially, there, there's a tremendous amount of regulation in beverage alcohol. Suppliers, the people who make the brands, make the products, they have to sell to distributors and distributors sell to retailers. Retailers can be bars, they can be liquor stores, they can be chain stores, et cetera. And those three tiers have to be separate. And within beverage alcohol, everyone's making a pretty good margin. Suppliers are still making a great margin. Distributors are making a good margin. Retailers are making a good margin. And whenever you see a situation like that, it's usually a signal for me for two things. If you can do it more efficiently, probably there's a place to recapture some of that margin. So if you can find a better way to distribute or a better way to retail, you're going to automatically going to be able to recapture margin that you might not otherwise in a different system. And the second is just that typically means that brand has been separated from consumers for too long. When you have these multiple chains that a brand has to go through and talk to their consumers, you end up having people market to their customers, not their consumers. And their customers are the distributors and they are the retailers. And when you have that atrophy of that brand muscle, that tends to mean that there's an opportunity to come in and market better and build brands better. So when, when you combine those two things together, this is a space that while it's massive, beverage alcohol in the US is $250 billion and it's a trillion dollar industry worldwide. It's quite a bit behind the times and those inefficiencies can be exploited. So, and of course, you know all about those inefficiencies as you were an operator at ENG Gallo and just you were in the business as an operator side. Walk me through a little bit of your career path before you became an investor. Yeah, I've had a, a little bit of an interesting back and forth. You know, before business school and before Gallo, I actually lived in the Caribbean and I was building commercial real estate, hotels, condominiums, et cetera. And then did a really big left turn and, and moved into, went back to business school and from there went into Gallo. A lot of because I was fascinated by this notion of, of helping develop extrinsic different products. And I was just so lucky. Gallo's amazing organization, very character rich. And I just happened to, from the very beginning of my career, report directly into Ernest Gallo. At the time, he was the head of the business unit. He's now the CEO of the company. Easily the smartest person I've ever come across in this industry, probably just one of the smartest people I've come across ever. And the really unique thing about, about having him really heading up and me working with him kind of hand in hand to do a lot of the new brand development and innovation was the question wasn't just what good new brands are you going to create? And Gallo is massive winery. They have massive fixed costs in distribution management, marketing, supply chain. They felt they had a right to win in spirits. And that's a lot of what I was doing is developing new spirits brands. Ernest had us take a step back and said, no, what makes new brands successful? Let's figure that out. And then we'll jump into the process of making new brands. And as we went through that process together, we started to figure out, hey, where are the efficiencies in launching a new brand specifically for a big major like Gallo? And we did make that process more efficient. And we did launch some really cool brands along with everyone else who was on that team. But what I became obsessed with as I was going through that process was we're optimizing the system, but we're optimizing the system for one of the big suppliers. Gallo has a ton of money, a ton of ability to push things into the market. And what kept me up at night was like, what happens if you have a completely blank sheet of paper? What is truly the most efficient way to launch a new brand? And there are a number of different ways, different distribution models, different go-to-markets, different kinds of products. And that's what kind of led me to say, I've got to get into VC because the only way I can test all these hypotheses is by finding these round pegs that fit into round holes backing these entrepreneurs with vision and helping them scale. So I couldn't have picked a better training ground. Couldn't be more grateful for my time there. 
No, that's awesome. So when you were thinking about the blank slate and going into the VC, becoming a VC, launching your own fund, what are some of the early struggles that you see entrepreneurs face with in beverage? I'd say, and again, I'll, I'll always delineate specifically in beverage alcohol, which is a little bit different than other beverage. We, we do invest in both. A lot of it comes down to how are you going to gain distribution? That middle tier that I talked about, that's undergone a lot of consolidation. You know, 20 years ago, there was very fractionalized, very regional distributors. Now there's really only three that matter. You know, Southern Wine and Spirits, Southern Glazer Wine and Spirits, R&DC and Breakthrough. And to get one of those to pay attention to you and actually do the role that they were meant to do is difficult. That's one of the reasons why it's so hard to start a brand in, in, in beverage alcohol. So that's, that's probably the, one of the biggest challenges. And that's consistently what we focus on from an investment thesis standpoint is how can you scale faster than normal? How do you not do what everybody else is doing as you try and grow this platform? So on the distribution side, and this is something that I talk with as well with uh, Low Sundays founders, if you're familiar with them, what are some of the metrics or keynotes that you have to, if you're starting a beverage brand, in order to kind of get a distributor's attention? Well, I mean, I'd say it's it's kind of half and half. In, in, in a perfect vacuum, you're going to have to start in your region, show some success, start to show that velocity. And quite frankly, you're going to have to build the apparatus the distributor should be doing for you. You're going to have to put ambassadors out in the field. You're going to have to, to do all the work of getting sips to lips. And then you can kind of hope to get noticed and picked up. Alternatively, you can have someone like Goat Rodeo invest in you who has a lot of good relationships with distributors <laughs> and, and, and kind of yeah, and, 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 and help cut that line a little bit. I mean, and that's as much as I want it 10 years from now not to be a relationship-driven business, today it is. And that's why smart money in the space actually matters. No, that makes sense. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of investors talk about the added value and we can provide added value. But what I really appreciate about this is you're being very blunt and direct in that the added value is obviously the relationships that you have when it comes to distributors, which is fantastic and obviously massive, massive for a brand. So what are some of the changes that you see in the beverage space? I mean, you know, now we're, of course, during COVID in terms of on-prem, it's maybe non-existent or yeah, not really on. So how are you thinking about on-prem versus off-prem? And like also how you think about even moving forward maybe to a world that is more normal per se post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, the COVID's been a really interesting shock to the system. Every media source seems to love to talk about how much people are drinking and <laughs> during COVID. Overall, sales aren't down, but the amazing thing is how the mix has changed. And when we started Goat Rodeo, the whole point was, okay, five years from now, 10 years from now, I don't think the, the ecosystem as it exists today is going to be the same. But I did think it was going to take five to 10 years to change. And what's happened is every month during COVID is a year for the way we kind of viewed. So e-commerce has become a massive part of this. And e-commerce in the short term seems like it favors the established brands, but it's also training an entirely new cohort of companies that how do you actually affect brand discovery? How do you affect trial? How do you affect awareness digitally? And going back to that very first point of, hey, these, these large alcohol suppliers, some of their marketing muscles have atrophied because of how far away they are from the consumer, not for this new cohort of companies. If you grew up saying, no, I'm building this company digitally native from the word go, I'm going to find a way to work within the regulations, but I'm, I'm going to make it feel to the consumer. Like, like they just went online on Instagram, discovered my brand and bought it. That to me is what's, what's changed so much during COVID. And so it's very much a gradually than suddenly phenomenon. I think coming out the other side of this on-premise is going to be really fundamentally different. And that for the longest time was the trial and awareness vehicle for the entire industry. That's where you would try to get consumers introduced. And we actually built the fund to never have to use that channel and find ways to scale without it. 
And so COVID has just really accelerated what we thought the thesis for the whole industry was. Wow. So you're almost in some ways exchanging on-prem to DTC in some ways. And that on-prem, you have the consumer try it. That's what you know gets them excited about it or interested in the brand or find the brand. But instead, that's being replaced through to DTC. That's really, really fascinating. And you kind of have to start to move buckets around from a financial standpoint too. Like, okay, well, every single brand was doing the same thing. Like I call it the on-premise rock fight. Everybody was trying to get on the back bar. Everybody was trying to get on the menu. Everybody was trying to get the bartender you know, involved in their product. If everybody's trying to do the same thing, it's going to get expensive. That's just the way that these, these channels work. So it's how do you take those dollars and say, okay, I need trial. People have to try this. I need influence. Like it was really meaningful when the bartender said, well, this is my favorite whiskey. And now you have to find other ways of getting that influence. So how do you reorient those dollars to efficiently grow D2C and digital capture channels? And that's a lot easier stated than done. And you see a lot of it, the large suppliers just throwing money at the problem. That's not going to fix it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's almost also because obviously these big distributors have a massive leverage over, you know, small brands in terms of, you know, their ability for obviously distribution. But if you have a brand, I take it where you have that excitement online, DC channel, you have people know, then you don't have to rely as much on these big distribution partners in order to try to get in on-prem, right? You're absolutely correct. And we kind of, from an investment thesis standpoint, we tackle that from two ways. Like, hey, what brand in and of itself has good enough velocity digitally to kind of overcome that system. And, and you hit the nail right on the head. When you can go to from zero to 30 states in under 12 months and just show you know massive month over month growth digitally, pretty soon those distributors come to you and say, hey, how, how can we work together? And their initial request is gonna be, well, how can we work together with you still paying me the old paradigm of margins? And you just look and be like, no, we're just gonna keep growing at 50% month over month digitally. Eventually you're gonna come back to me and say, okay, maybe I won't charge you 30 points. You know, at some point you're gonna fracture the cartel that is the middle tier and, and literally have consumer demand, at least to some degree, dictate how much a distributor can charge a supplier for getting in front of the consumers. It's fascinating. It really, really shows that the brand really actually has the true power in the relationship. And, you know, we talk about like the power of brand, but it seems like in this system or, you know, I guess what's changing, but in the old guard, the distributors actually had the real power, not so much the brand, somewhat. Especially at the beginning, you know, it's such a weird, like I almost liken it akin to like the world before World War One, where it's like multipolar. So the big suppliers, they have a lot of power. If you're Diageo or Bacardi, you have all these really big brands, you can dictate a lot to the distributors. But also the distributors can be like, yeah, we're not going to do that. You know, we are your eventually your, your sales force to your customer. And the, the person who gets left out in the cold are new brands, people who are trying to do new things because there's just no reason to focus on them until they're so obviously selling so much that you have to focus on them. So what tools can we use? And frankly, we invest both in the brands that are using the tools well and the tools themselves. Because just as important as you know, a single brand doing really well digitally and, and kind of overcoming that is someone who is building the platform that allows you to aggregate thousands of small craft brands and give them all access to a system they wouldn't otherwise have. That makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate you explaining it. So talk to me a little bit about your due diligence process and also a little bit about your investment stage. Yeah, so our due diligence process right now is a function of our stage, right? So, I mean, the, the, the first thing I'll call out to your listeners is like, one of the reasons I have such empathy for founders 
is I'm like kind of literally a founder myself right now. Like we decided to get into this game, was too old to go be like an associate or an analyst at another VC fund. So I just had to start my own. So I'm learning, you know, how this is all going as, as I'm going along. So for us to be impactful in fund one, we decided to go seed stage, you know, with a little bit of series A. And for Bev Alk, and we, we can talk about cannabis a little bit later, what, what that meant was we were going to only focus on things that had the chance to scale rapidly. And what does that mean? Because it's kind of a, isn't that what everybody wants to focus on? <laughs> and for, for us, that meant, how do you do this without the on-premise? And, and keep in mind, this was pre-COVID, before the on-premise just completely went away. We said, listen, on-premise is where all the expense is housed, but it's also where trial and awareness is housed. So how do we find things that'll scale faster? And, and what that meant we, we looked for was we actually almost counterintuitively became very IP centric. We're looking for people with actual IP, whether it's in package or liquid, because those things, not only do they tend to scale faster because they're true innovation and consumers can recognize that, you can typically explain that innovation really well digitally. Very difficult for an Instagram ad to say, this is why this vodka is better than this vodka, because spoiler alert, they're no different. They all came from the same place. Very but much easier for digital cell advertising to explain, this is why this brand new thing solves a problem you didn't even know you had. So we, we tend to focus a lot on IP. And other than that, we tend to focus a lot on what I would call fairly unique business models. That does almost always have a, a bent towards direct-to-consumer, but anything that could bypass the need for either the on-premise or immediate distributor buy-in is what we, what we put money in. So for example, one of our investments is called One Hope. They're essentially trying to become the Amway of wine. They're trying to empower 50,000 direct sellers out there as their own little franchise wine shops. And it's working. And it's working because you never had to ask the distributor for permission. You got to go right to the consumer and ask for their permission. That's awesome. And I really appreciate that example. And I love how you think about innovation and about patents and, and also just seeing if you actually do have like a competitive advantage as well when it comes to innovation. What are some other examples when you think about innovation and that you're particularly excited about, about new beverage combinations or just patents that you're just really, really interested in? It's still an investment business, right? So it still always comes down to gross margin. <laughs> but you know, where, where we tend to get really, really excited, is this innovation enough of a material change in the way consumers might drink? So we have an investment called Drinksmith and it's in the ready to drink cocktail space, which is massive. You know, you know, canned cocktails when they're ready to drink, you know, pre-mixed, everything's there. Well, they went out, they created a patent that said, hey, listen, the difference between a bad cocktail and a good cocktail is fresh ingredients. So they built a patented package that could actually go through HPP packing the exact same way when you and I would walk into like a Whole Foods and buy a really expensive bottle of juice. They're using that process to basically be able to make a cocktail as good as the very best mixology bars can and then ship it to you overnight. So when we look at something like that, we're like, like, okay, this is an entirely incremental category. The spend is already proven. People love going to bars. They love mixology. And this is just simply providing it to them in their homes in a different manner in which they might want to consume. So we dove in and then you start to apply just the normal metrics. Like, you know, is the gross margin there or, or more importantly, especially, and I find this a lot when you're dealing with something that I consider true innovation, the gross margin and true innovation is very rarely there at the beginning in consumer goods because you're almost exclusively always talking about custom packaging. And custom packaging is very, very expensive at low scale. And obviously it becomes cheaper, especially if you're plastic based as you scale. So if you wanna ask me like, hey, within BevAlk, what's the true best use of venture dollars? It's to help get something that has 
actual innovation, true custom packaging up and off the ground over that hump where they're low margin to when they can start to scale their cogs down and build that gross margin that actually works. It's not meant to invest in yet another whiskey or yet another gin that actually has no true differentiation from anything else on the market. Like that's a bad use of venture dollars. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So it's almost investing in companies that already almost have that definitive innovation, not looking for venture dollars to actually build out the innovation currently. So actually use the money to say, okay, you now have your product here and your design, maybe a bit of demand, but now we can actually really actually use the money to actually scale the brand. Is that kind of right? Yeah, scale the brand and get enough volume to the point where the flywheel of you know the virtuous cycle of, hey, we sold more this month than we did last month. Now we can buy a, you know, a large order of dry goods and that price is going to drop. And then you know all of a sudden, before you know it, you're in a place where you're you know, gross margin super thick and everything's great. So has it been tricky during COVID? I know we talked about some of like the effects on the beverage world when it comes to, you know, on-prem and versus DTC, which I think is fascinating, but has it been harder finding conviction within founders since you're having to meet with them remotely? I would say founders, no. I think Zoom does a pretty interesting job. Like I hear other colleagues and other funds say like, oh, well, I like the informality of it. And I do. And you get to see what happens if, if their baby cries during the call and you get to see if they, you know, if they have the ability to handle that. And like that, that that sounds really good. I haven't seen a, a very material difference. The place I have seen a big difference is I can't nearly as much as I'd like to go watch their product and consumers interact kind of quietly. I can't go sit in a BevMo or a Total Wine and, and watch a case stack and, and see how consumers react to that. Like, And I miss that very much because there is no ability to change that. And beverage, you know, really any consumable product, whether it's beverage or alcohol, beverage or food, like the notion of sampling is so important and watching that consumer look at that. I miss that, but also it's become an opportunity because if you can grow in this environment without the kind of very traditional sampling tool, then you probably have something really special once you can get back to sampling consumers. Absolutely. I think it goes back to your point about how D2C will never 100% replace, but is trying to almost replace the on-prem and the sampling side to that the on-prem or sampling of offers in person. Yeah. If you knew that you were going to have to essentially, when all the counting was reconciled, give away bottles to the on-prem in order to, to get positioned there, then you should port that exact same willingness over to D2C. I, I don't mind in this scenario, if I'm not immediately positive on order one, you know, depending on its size, you know, as long as the secondary metrics are there, like you can't do it forever. And if no one's repurchasing, then that, that obviously is not going to work as a tactic, but you have to be flexible in an environment where your normal trial and awareness vehicles just go on. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you know, when we were talking before, we brought up uh, Nick Mandel and how what he said was 100% correct. When you invest in physical goods, such as beverage, you're always going to have marginal costs. It actually almost doesn't make sense in a lot of ways to invest in it over technology. And I know that this is obviously a deep love and passion for you emotionally. And also you left another career in order to be in this. But I'd say that this is probably a really rudimentary question, but why should investors invest in food and bev over, you know, other maybe types of companies? that aren't exposed to those types of marginal costs? Well, I, I think you can answer that question in one of two ways. Like if, if you're going to do this from like an angel sense and you have enough liquidity and enough security to go out and make some interesting angel investments, doing it in food and bed can be fun because you can actually understand what values the brand is acting on people. If you look at it from a more professionalized standpoint, like a fund, it changes to some degree the goal. Like there, there's just no such thing as the 100x without very many exceptions. So you have to have a higher hit rate. And in order to do that, I, I think it makes you, you know, be laser focused on are the gross margins 
there at the beginning or if not do you have a very clear path to how you're going to get there as this brand scales because you just simply can't overcome it because the, the acquiring universe disappears if you don't have that i think that's what you have to focus on a lot as long as you're still doing marginal costs your gross margin becomes almost more important and making sure it's over a certain hurdle right no that's helpful that, that kind of leads into actually how you think about a portfolio construction where in technology it's usually can be pretty binary but if it's a one and you hit on it then it could be 100x or maybe a thousand x return but in food and bev your portfolio almost has to be a bit more even keeled in terms of the actual return profile across it so yeah it's it's actually one of the reasons why i was shocked coming into it and, and there are some systemic reasons why like morality clauses etc like very consistently across most consumer goods, beverage alcohol has massive margins, even when you account for how much is being accrued to the second, third tier. And, and almost counterintuitively, beverage alcohol is as prepared for e-commerce as anything. As, to me, it's a shock that it hasn't come earlier because consumers have been trained to get pretty big basket sizes. Like if, if I can get you to put a couple bottles of like $80 whiskey into your basket and then ship it to you, do you know how much less shipping is as a function of that transaction than if I'm shipping you a 24 pack of vitamin water? It is night and day. And so I'm really pleased. And, and for that reason, we'll probably remain an investor in this industry for as long as I can, because I think there is a lot of low hanging fruit as a, a way that the environment and the ecosystem is system, like systematically put together. No, absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. So what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think a lot of people would say, okay, well, this notion of occasionally having to put the need to deploy capital a little bit above the, the needs of companies for capital, and they'd be right. I would actually just ask a lot of people who say that kind of, that to me is the first order thing that should change. The second order thing, and it's it's easy for me to say this because I don't have way too much capital to deploy. You know, I, I, I would love to have that problem at some point for any of LPs out there looking to allocate. But I'm not so sure, especially especially at the early stages, that this notion of rounds is the right way to go about this. You know, having some structured finance where we're like, okay, we're going to agree that you're, you know, yes, we understand that you need X amount of capital to get to where you think you want to be. But why don't we chop that into three different parts and put a rolling valuation across it so that right now, everybody in this price discovery moment, the entrepreneur is incentivized to massively overstate what they think they can do. The investor is then incentivized to underestimate and or just bite the bullet if they have to just deploy capital. And I'm just not sure that's the most efficient way of doing this, especially at the seed round. Some of the investments that I've enjoyed the most is when I've come into someone and said, okay, we'll give you X amount now. And if you hit these basic triggers, we'll give you, you know, another 2X that. And if you hit those triggers, we'll give you another 2X that. And everybody's happy because their valuation slowly creeps up. They're never drowning in capital. They never feel the need to spend their way to growth. They're incentivized to remain efficient as opposed to incentivized to burn through as much as possible to raise their top line, which would behoove everyone in the ecosystem. What I also love about that is that it's very founder friendly as well, that approach. Like I've heard, I remember like when I actually had on like Eric Paley, you listened to his episode, how he was saying how he was a founder. He, you know, one fund led the seed round and then he would have loved to go back to the fund and say, all right, can you lead our A or anything like that? Or like, no, we're going to partake in pro rata, but we're not going to lead. And so they had to go out and like fundraise themselves. And it was just a, a waste of time. And so being able to, you know, go back to your investors and actually them just help you supply along the way. It also just saves them and makes them more efficient in their time because then they're not constantly have to go out, meet new investors, fundraising, which takes a lot a heck of time just meeting new investors and really is almost like a full-time job in and of itself. Yeah. And I mean, it would take a lot of intention 
on the investor side too, because you know, rather than just going through a finite due diligence process, putting your chunk in and then you know, hoping for the best and obviously doing your best to help the investment grow as well until the next round comes in, you have to sit down and put some legitimate thought into, okay, how efficient do you think they can actually use the capital? And if they can deliver on that, how much more do you want to give them? It just makes everybody be a lot more thoughtful and a lot more intentional, but I also don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? We recently invested in a company called Speakeasy Co. And what they do is, is kind of going back to the very thing. You know, if you work on, in D2C, you either have a tremendously high velocity, at which point it probably behooves you to build your own fulfillment system, or you don't have a very high velocity, but you still want access to the ability to direct a consumer deliver. So I'll use an example. Let's say it's Gelb's fine whiskey. And you have a tasting room in Lake Tahoe. And tremendous amount of people come through. They love your whiskey. You sell okay in the bars around you. But all these people come out to Lake Tahoe from New York and Florida and Texas, and they come back to their home market and say, well, I still want some of Gelb's fine whiskey. Good luck convincing a Texas distributor to pick you up or a Florida distributor to pick you up when you're not even saturated in California. It's just not going to happen. What Speakeasy does it allows you to, to instantly onboard. They'll build you out a shopping cart that looks native to your own website. And now you can just go and use your own digital tools that everyone else in non-alcohol is allowed to use to build demand. And you can fulfill and you can ship your whiskey compliantly to these other locations. And, and to me, it's what unlocks like the top of the funnel. You know, I, I want to find a way to support not just a brand. I want to support all craft brands in the context of a system that probably is antagonistic to them, if we're being really frank, when they're starting out. So something like this can come in there, then they can grow with those brands. So, you know, I essentially look at it as distribution as a service, especially when you combine it with a lot of the other digital tools that exist. I think they have a chance to to be really, really impactful. You know, if I were to create the analogy, they're kind of just Shopify for spirits. That's great. I mean, it's really empowering because you're really helping out, you know, craft alcohol brands. And that's really great helping out with their distribution. I love that analogy too, with with being the Shopify for brands. So on paper, it sounds like a great investment. And I imagine during COVID, it's because um, a lot more brands want to go D to C. So that probably was an uptick there. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, I noticed you asked folks this a lot. And like, I was trying to decide whether or not I was like, well, what would make me sound really smart and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, no, nah, man, just be honest. So I'm like a huge Gibson fanatic. So my favorite book ever is called Pattern Recognition. It's a, it's a Gibson novel. Couldn't recommend it enough. Like, I am so like weirdly quirky myself. And I, like, my wife makes fun of me all the time because she'll overhear my conversations with brands. And I'll be like, oh, no, that color yellow is wrong. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And the main character in Pattern Recognition has an almost like allergic reaction to bad trademarks, which sounds ridiculous, but William Gibson somehow makes it all work. And I love it. It's my favorite book. And I really recommend folks read it. The book professionally, like, it's not that I disagree with like all the people, especially in the Valley who've been conditioned to say like, oh, Sapien or you know, a Talib book. Like I agree with all of that. So kind of in that vein, uh, there's a book called Against the Gods. That's essentially a, a history of risk. And I think that especially for type A folks, people who are really hard charging, who are you know always trying to succeed, a book that essentially reminds them that like probability dictates so much of your life, you know, that, that you, you have to always be prepared for things to go wrong, always prepared for things to go right, is a really good reminder for folks who kind of think that they're the master of the universe. And so it's, it's a really great, 
almost narrative story base that basically shows, okay, here's how we went from literally only having superstition and these notions of, you know, almost paganistic religion of, of what fate is to an entire industry growing up around how do you manage risk? How do you, you know, you know the second you have abilities to manage risk, then that enables risk-taking behavior, entrepreneurs can show up, et cetera. So I, th- I think a lot of folks would enjoy reading Against the Gods. Love it. Really thrilled because I don't think anyone else has mentioned these two books. So you're very original, Carlton, which is great. So my final question is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? This one, I assumed you're going to ask them like this. And I thought a lot about giving them advice as far as how to fundraise, what the narrative is. And at the end of the day, I kind of just swept it all under the rug and said, like, it's completely and totally okay to fail. Like every single tool that's being developed right now, like, all, you know, the entire ecosystem around Shopify, the entire ecosystem around Amazon, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every day to fail. And it's becoming easier and easier and easier every day as far as those tools to scale. So like, do not get down if you're first iteration of this doesn't work. And we've got some portfolio companies that spent three years before they got funding as they were, as they were getting their thing right. And that's okay to do, but also don't be afraid to get a minimum viable product out there, even in consumer. Because everybody has this notion of like, well, it's got to be perfect before I get it in front of consumers. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. If you found a big enough consumer need that's not currently being served, even just barely scraping the surface of that pool of demand, you're going to get a signal. So just try earlier than you thought you're, you're ready. Get out there, try. And there will be people out there who respect the entrepreneurial spirit and, and want to fund your attempt. I think that's an excellent piece of advice. You can fail so cheaply now. So just keep trying out new things. Carlton, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, especially on a Friday afternoon. Of course. And uh, well, the one thing I do want to say to all your listeners is I can't thank you and all the people like yourself enough for these podcasts you put out. Like, I can't tell you how much I learned listening to your podcasts and podcasts like it. Like In the same manner of like, hey, it's cheaper than ever to fail. It's cheaper than ever to learn. I mean, queue up you know, a couple hours, you've got a long drive of consumer VC and you've basically just done better than spending $150,000 on an MBA for launching a product. And that's like all these tools that are out there, it cuts both ways. So thank you for doing this kind of stuff because I've learned way more than I did at at my, my MBA from just listening to podcasts like yours and others like them. So we'll have to put in the show notes, the biggest takeaway is two hours of consumer VC equals $150,000 MBA. <laughs> you know what? I, I, you know, in, in, in new ways, it <laughs> I'm might. Just, I'm just kidding. I'm no, just kidding. It, like, here's the thing is it, it might. Like, I'm, I'm, like, I, I, as someone who has one, I'm not sure that I, I wouldn't be way better served just having found podcasts. Well, Carlton, you're so kind. Thanks again, man. This has been so much fun. Yeah, you as well. And, and good luck on the upcoming forum that you have. I'm looking forward to it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure time with Carlton. We really appreciate him taking the time. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at MikeGelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.